Well, welcome to RUF. Um, for those of you who haven't been here before, uh, we're really glad to have you. My name is Andrew. I'm the campus minister here and would love to get to know you. Um, tonight, we're actually starting a new sermon series in the book of First Thessalonians, and we're calling the series Our Ancient Future Hope for Today. Kind of a mouthful, but the reason we're calling it that is because the major theme of this letter is Jesus's second coming and what that means for us here and now today. And that's been the church's hope since 2000 years ago. Um, so that's the, that's the reason behind our sermon series. Tonight, we're, uh, we're going to be looking at gospel encouragement from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And before we, or before I pray and before we get into the passage, just a word of context to give us our bearings. So Paul, the Apostle Paul sent by Christ, he's writing this letter to a church that he just recently planted. But he had to leave. Uh, there was some riots that were forming, and he had to leave. And so he's writing this letter back to them, and the church is now facing some significant uh, difficulties, to put it mildly. I mean, there's the ongoing persecution. Christians are being thrown in jail. Um, but there's also believers that are dying. And so there's all this confusion, um, all this discouragement. And so Paul writes this letter to both comfort and encourage these Christians in their time of need. So if you're here tonight as someone who's uh, maybe discouraged yourself, or you know someone who's in the midst of discouragement, you've come to the right place, because uh, we're going to be talking about the encouragement that we receive from Christ in the gospel. So before we do that, uh, would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we do uh, look to you and ask for you to comfort us and encourage us tonight. Um, Lord, there's so much going on. Um, seems like we're kind of in the right in the smack dab in the middle of the semester, and there are assignments due and tests coming up, um, tests that have passed. Uh, Lord, we want you to draw us near to you and draw near to us. And so would you do that through your word and by your spirit? Um, Lord, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. O oh, Lord, our rock and our redeemer, in your name we pray. Amen. Well, I actually want to open tonight with a question. What happened to you or what happened inside of you when you heard me say just a second ago that we're going to be talking about encouragement tonight? Where did your mind go? If I were you, if I were sitting where you are, um, I'd probably think, seems basic, maybe a little bit vanilla, kind of, I mean, encouragement is one of those, like, overused, churchy words that, like, stuff Christians say, stuff Christians like to say. Um, and so if you're like me, maybe you hear that word and your eyes start to glaze over, and you're kind of like, what are we going to talk about that I have, that we haven't already heard before? The reality is, true encouragement is really hard to come by. Giving and receiving encouragement is a lot harder than we're willing to admit. Let me give you two examples. The first is this. Um, there's a, there are leadership experts who like to throw around the statistic that for every one word of challenge or correction that you give someone, you need three words of encouragement to build them up. And I was actually talking to a, a ministry mentor of mine. Uh, he was telling me about this statistic, and he said, Andrew, in my experience, I think the ratio is more like five to one. Just to hear one word of correction 
or, or, uh, or challenge. Humans just need to hear five words of encouragement. And if we're honest, it's really hard to give that much encouragement. I mean, when you and I see a problem, I think our knee-jerk reflex is just like, go attack the problem. Go address it. Call it out. Let's, you know, let's, let's solve it. Um, it's hard to give that much encouragement. Well, what about receiving encouragement? Second example. What do you do when someone tries to compliment you? When someone says, I really like that outfit, or that, that dress looks great on you. You, you say, oh, this old thing? <laughs> or if, uh, if someone, if someone congratulates you on, uh, let's say doing really well on an exam, you might say like, yeah, I got lucky. You try to downplay it or undermine it. Or if someone congratulates you for getting into that graduate school, you might say something self-deprecating like, oh yeah, they might be, they must be lowering their standards. It's really hard for us even to receive words of encouragement. Um, so, and yet, we really, we really do need it. We hate to admit it because we want to be self-sufficient, but we really do need true encouragement, especially since we live in a world that's fallen, that's filled with thorns and thistles, pain, heartbreak, heartache, affliction, and even death. We need encouragement. And what we see from this passage of Scripture is that Paul knew this about the Thessalonians, that they needed some real, true gospel encouragement. And so that's why he's writing to them. And what, what I want us to see from this passage is he really focuses on two aspects of gospel encouragement. And those are in your handout. You can see the outline. We're just going to be talking about two things, gospel faith and gospel conduct. Those are the two things, the two key things that Paul encourages um, in the Thessalonian believers. So let's first see how Paul encourages the Thessalonians in their gospel faith. So look with me. We're going to jump right into the passage, right at verse 3. Let's look at verse 2. So Paul, he starts by saying, you know, we give thanks. He's talking about himself, Silvanus, who's also known as, as Silas and Timothy. We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. And then look at verse 3. Remembering before our God and Father, what? Your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then that word faith is repeated a little bit further down in verse 8. Paul encourages them by saying, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. And, and then furthermore, there's two, there's two things in particular about gospel faith that Paul highlights. The first is that gospel faith is rooted in the Trinity. Gospel faith is rooted in the Trinity, and especially in the triune God's love and election. And we see that that Paul mentions all three persons of the Trinity in a really short space at the beginning of this letter. So look with me at verse 1 even, where Paul mentions God the Father and the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, To the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 3, he talks about remembering our God and Father, uh, or remembering before our God and Father. We just read that verse. Your work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope. And then in the same breath, in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then again, you can jump down to verses 9 and 10, and you see Father and Son mentioned there as well. 
Not to be forgotten, he also mentions the Holy Spirit not once but twice in verse 5 and verse 6. Just here in these 10 verses, we see all three persons of the Trinity coming up. Um, That's not incidental. Paul is highlighting that our faith is rooted in the Trinity. And if, if this is too small a sample size for you, if you were to take the whole letter of 1 Thessalonians and just ask the question, what words come up the most frequently? Because usually when, when there's repeated words, that's more or less the focus of the letter. The two most repeated words in this whole letter are theos, God, and kurios, Lord. So this letter is about God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so before we go a step further, I just want to ask, is our faith rooted in the Holy Trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? or that unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. There's a huge difference. And you might be wondering, well, how do I know? Kind of what's a litmus test? I'm actually going to give you three litmus tests. Um, that's what you get for asking. Uh, so the first, how do I know if my faith is, is, is God-centered or me-centered or, or man-centered? First litmus test. Are you willing to take risks in relationship? Or... Do you tend to avoid taking risks in relationship because you're worried about what others might think of you? Second test. Uh, when you, say, leave church on a Sunday, if you go to church, or if you leave here after um, large group, after hearing a sermon, let's say, uh, when you're walking out of the room or driving away from church, uh, do you ask yourself and do you ask your friends in the car, let's say, um, hey, what did you like about the service or what did you not like? Um, about the service or about the song or about the music? Or do you ask the question, I almost tripped over this and killed myself. Um, Note to self, don't walk backwards. Or do you ask uh, yourself or your friends, hey, what, what comforted or convicted you from this morning's worship? You see the difference. One is kind of preference driven. What did I like? What did I enjoy? And the other question is, how did God use whatever was sung, whatever was read and preached, to work in your heart? Last uh, litmus test. When challenges and afflictions come your way, when you're sick, when uh, you experience rejection, when you get back a, a, a paper or an exam with a bad grade, when you leave Taco Tuesday and you realize that your toddler spilled salsa all over your, uh, your pants and your shoes, Um, when those, true story, uh, we're getting real, when those challenges and, dare I say, afflictions come your way, um, do they rob you? Do they completely rob you of joy and peace? Or can you receive those setbacks and disappointments as coming from the Lord just as you accept the good things, the blessings? Paul is starting this letter and he's commending a faith that's so rooted in the Trinity that it's able to risk rejection. It's open to the comfort and conviction that the Lord might bring. And it really does lead to an abiding joy and peace in the midst of affliction. Well, not only is he highlighting that our gospel faith is rooted in the Trinity, he also, uh, he's commending a faith that's filled with power. Look with me at verse 5. Paul says that, um, in verse 4, he says, We know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. And then in verse 5, he says, 
because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And this is, this is not the only place where Paul talks about the gospel coming in power. It's a pretty famous verse at the beginning of his letter to the Romans, Romans 1 verse 16, where Paul says that he's not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation. And in both instances, that word for power, it's the same word. It's the Greek word dunamis, which is where we get our word dynamite from. How many times do we think of the gospel as dynamite, as this, this powerful force that is, that is fully uh, combustible, that's totally able to shake, shake things up? Why is Paul reminding the Thessalonians that the gospel is filled with power, that it's dynamite? It's because the world and the flesh and the devil are trying to convince them, they try to convince us, that the gospel is weak, that it's powerless, that it's not dynamite, but it's a dud, that it's not able to affect any change. And y'all, that is a lie. But it's easy to believe the lie so, so much of the time. I mean, how many, how many times have, have you or I said or thought of, of someone? Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a roommate. Maybe it's a sibling. How many times have we thought, oh, she'll never change. He'll never change. Or how many times have we thought that of ourselves when we're discouraged by this particular struggle that keeps popping up in our life and you're just like, gosh, I'm never going to change. That I'm always going to be that way. Paul is saying to you and to me, remember the truly combustible nature of the gospel. It's powerful enough to turn even the coldest heart aflame with love and passion for the Lord. It's not a dud. It is dynamite. And of all people, Paul would know, right? Paul would know the power of the gospel to change someone's life completely. So let me ask you this. If the gospel is powerful enough to bring spiritually dead people back to life, is there anyone that you or I can completely write off? Is there anyone that we can say, he or she is too far gone? No way. We can't say it of others. We can't say it of ourselves. So Paul is encouraging a gospel faith that's rooted in the Trinity and it's filled with power. And you don't have to just take Paul's word for it. And you can go and look at Christ's teaching, Jesus' teaching, um, that the night before he was crucified, uh, from John chapter 15, this famous passage where Jesus is teaching the disciples over supper that he is the vine and that his disciples are the branches. Do you guys remember this? He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, he it is that bears much fruit. And I'll never forget, I had a professor, a seminary professor, comment on that passage. And he simply said, to, he looked at me, he looked at to the other people that he was talking to. He said, hey, if, if our lives show fruit, that means there must be power in the vine. If our lives show fruit, there's got to be power in the vine. To go from kind of more your uh, um, 
agricultural uh, world to maybe more of a modern context. Um, consider consider uh, consider the tool that you would most likely grab if you're trying to cut through a really thick piece of wood. So like let's say you've got this pretty beefy four by four just made out of solid wood. Um, this is actually a, a real life analogy from my own life I had to do this. Um, if you pick up a saw that's battery operated and try to cut through that really thick post, it's going to die halfway through it. It's just going to suck all the, all the juice out of that battery. What you really need for that job is a corded saw, one that's plugged into the wall that there's no battery to deplete. It, it'll just go right through that. So you would always choose that corded that corded saw because it's backed up by all the limitless, virtually limitless energy that's not just in the wall, but it's connected to, you know, Duke Energy and their vast, their vast grid, their vast power, you know, power plant or whatever. You can tell that I'm talking about things that I don't, don't know about. Um, but, but hang with me here. So often we treat our faith as if it's battery operated. When in reality, what Paul is showing us and what Jesus is showing us is that we're actually plugged into the limitless power of God the Father, the Son Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus goes on to say in John 15, As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in me, in the vine, or unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And if you're wondering, how do you abide in Jesus? He goes and tells us, he says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. We tap into that power, the power of the triune God, by abiding in the love of Christ, by resting in the love and the election of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, if our faith starts to feel stale or dry or cold, instead of immediately looking at our spiritual disciplines, we need to look immediately to our Savior to abide in Him and abide in His love and encourage one another in a gospel faith that's rooted in the Trinity and filled with power. Well, Paul doesn't just encourage a gospel faith. He also encourages gospel conduct. So that's what we're going to talk about now, gospel conduct. Um, and we see that in verses 5 through 10, the, the, the second half of the, of the chapter, so to speak. Um, those verses show us that gospel conduct is marked by imitation, proclamation, and transformation. So first, imitation. Look, look, look at this imitation language that we see. Um, halfway through verse 5 and then through verse 7. So Paul is saying that, that the gospel has come um, and that, that the Thessalonians know what kind of men we, Paul and, and Silas and Timothy, they know what kind of men they prove to be among you for your sake. It's a very self-conscious statement of Paul knowing that they were, Paul and Silas knew that they were being watched. And, and they, they lived a certain way and they, they walked a certain manner before the Thessalonians. And then verse 6, And you, the Thessalonians, became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers 
in Macedonia and Achaia. So Paul and Silas and Timothy were trying to be a certain kind of men for the sake of the Thessalonians. They became imitators of Paul and his crew and of the Lord, and that they became an example to others. All this imitation uh, is going on, and, and it just highlights that Paul knew that the gospel was not just something that is taught, but it's something that is caught as well. We learn to live out the gospel by imitating others who are living out the gospel in real time. Um, so some of you know this, uh, probably a lot of you know this, um, I'm actually a, a graduate of Davidson, not just Davidson, but of Davidson RUF. So I used to be in your in your shoes not too, too long ago. I'm not that old. Um, and I loved my campus minister. Uh, those of you who are sophomores and through seniors, um, I'm sure you guys love Sid and have loved him. Um, I loved my campus minister and David. Um, some of you met him when you came to the installation service. And I thought, honestly, he was a gifted preacher. He was really, really wise uh, in one-on-one meetings. I just felt like I was sitting down with the sage who was giving all this great biblical advice, drew, drew some diagrams, like some napkin drawings that I still remember to this day. But the thing that I remember the most about David was not necessarily a, a specific illustration that he gave in large group, not exactly a, a specific question that he asked me across the table over coffee. Uh, what I remember about David was the way that he treated his wife and the way that he loved her and loved his children. What I really remember is how he lived out the gospel in his everyday life. And I, I so admire him for that, and I, I am seeking to live out the gospel as it's been modeled for me. Paul is saying that gospel conduct is marked by this imitation, seeking to imitate others as they imitate the Lord. Not just that, though, it's also marked by proclamation. So if you look at verse 8, verse 8 and 9, Paul says that, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, uh, but your faith has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. Uh, and the way that Paul is describing this gospel proclamation is not as if it's something that is drudgery, it's not this rote compulsory thing, but rather it's this overflow, this overflow of joy. They're, they're proclaiming the gospel the way that you or I would tell others about a really amazing movie that we just saw. Like, you got to go see Downton Abbey. You just have to go see it. Um, if you really like that kind of thing. Or you've got to read whatever, Lord of the Rings, whatever your favorite book is. Paul is commending uh, the Thessalonians for the way in which they, they let the gospel flow out from them in word and in deed. He's mirroring um, the, the, co- the commendation that Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah gave in the Old Testament. I'll just read this for you. Isaiah 52, verse 7. Isaiah says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. So we've seen that that Paul is commending 
uh, imitation, proclamation, and then finally we see that he commends gospel transformation as well. Look with me at the end of verse 9 and verse 10. Paul commends them for turning to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. What we see here is that turning from idols actually frees us up to serve, to serve the Lord. And it also frees us up to hope for and to yearn for and to await Christ's return. We can't pray, even as we sang, we can't truly sing from the heart or pray, come Lord Jesus, um, while we're worshiping idols, while our hearts are given over to idols. We might pray, come Lord Jesus, but only after I get my degree and graduate from Davidson, or come Lord Jesus, but just let me, just let me get that dream job first. Or come Lord Jesus, but like only after I get married and start having a family. Our idols don't let us yearn for Jesus' return. And so you know that the gospel is really starting to take root in your heart when you can still hold on to your dreams and desires, but your grip on them starts to loosen. And you're willing to be to, to you're willing to let Jesus interrupt you and interrupt your dreams, your plan, your desire. So we've considered how Paul has encouraged the Thessalonians and our faith, gospel faith, and gospel conduct. And if there's one kind of application that I want us to take away um, tonight, take away from this tonight, it'd be this. Take some time this week or maybe over fall break to reflect on someone else's walk with the Lord. Reflect on someone else's. Maybe it's a roommate. Maybe it's a parent or a sibling a friend, reflect on their gospel faith and gospel conduct, and then encourage them in it. Maybe write them a note. Maybe give them a phone call. Maybe shoot them a text. However, most naturally it would be for you. But actually reflect on how they're walking with the Lord. And, and maybe it's uh, maybe you're able to say to them, hey, I realized or I saw how you handled that recent setback and you handled it with a lot of a lot of grace. And I just want to let you know that that really encouraged me. You can encourage them that way. Or you could say, hey, I've just noticed that you've, you seem to be becoming a, like a lot more patient and kind towards people, especially towards difficult people. How, however it is for you and in your relationships, reflect on someone else's walk with the Lord and let them know, encourage them in that, and how they're growing in grace. So, I think I could probably end right here. Maybe some of you are saying, yes, please, end right here. Um, and I think maybe half of the room, maybe more than half, but I'll just say half the room, you'd probably be just good to go. And, and maybe you're just temperamentally more the optimist, or more the doer. Maybe you're more like the Martha type, or the, you know, the Tigger um, and you're just like, yeah, just, just, okay, I'm going to go encourage my friends. That's great. But I want to just take a moment and acknowledge the other half of the room or even the other half of us, those that are maybe more the, the pessimists, the Eeyore type, uh, the thinkers rather, I've, you know, those of us in the room, 
Isn't it true that when someone tries to encourage you, especially if you're in the midst of hardship, you ask yourself these two questions. Does that person really know me? And has that person really suffered? If the answer to those two questions are no, then that word of encouragement, as you know, well-intended as it might have been, is not going to land with you. It's going to ring hollow because they either don't know you or they haven't gone through anything remotely like what you're going through. And so how could they empathize? How could they relate? But here's what I want all of us to see tonight. Whether we're, whether we're a Tigger or an Eeyore, an optimist or a pessimist, a doer or a thinker. If you're a Christian, if you have placed your faith, your trust, your hope in Christ, then you have access to a true, powerful, lasting source of encouragement. I'd argue the truest, the longest lasting, the most powerful source of encouragement. He knows you better than you know yourself. And he has suffered far more than any one of us has ever suffered. Jesus, the crucified, risen Son of God, is the most compelling, the most abiding encouragement there ever is or ever will be. No one, consider this, no one was as rooted in the Father's love as Jesus. No one has been more connected or filled with the Spirit as Jesus. No one has ever been more filled with power from on high than Jesus. No one has been a better example for us to imitate than Jesus. No one's proclaimed the gospel more beautifully in word or in deed. No one has drawn more people to a place of life-transforming repentance and faith than Jesus Christ. And the place where you and I receive the most encouragement is at the foot of Jesus' cross. Because it's there that we see that we are far more sinful than we ever, ever dared imagine. And we're far more loved than we ever could have hoped. Because there we see that the Son of God has taken on our sins so that you and I would be forgiven. So that we would be joined to him and through his spirit, we would be able to receive words of gospel encouragement and gospel hope. He knows you and I better than you you know yourself, better than I know myself. He loves you even better than you love yourself. And so whether you identify as a Christian or not, I'd ask, would you receive Jesus as the source of encouragement that your soul was made for? Maybe it's for the first time tonight. Maybe it's for the umpteenth time. But would you look to him? Would you let him soothe your soul? And then remember this, as we do that, as we look to him, as we look to be filled through him by his grace, remember that we were never meant to be reservoirs, just storing up his love and his grace, but we were made to be rivers, conduits of his love and grace, that they might go through us and out into the world. So would we receive 
and not just receive, but also share the encouragement that we receive from Christ. Will we do that today and tomorrow until he comes back? Let's pray.